Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is July the 28th, 2023, a Friday. Uh, a couple of years ago, I had one of America's, I guess, angriest writers, Dale Maharidge, on the show. He's one of America's critics, one of America's great critics of inequality and injustice, and I guess of American capitalism. At that point, he had a new book out, Fucked at Birth, uh, excusing the language, but it's his words, not mine. Maharidge is also very well known because uh, he got a call in 1995 from the great Bruce Springsteen. He'd written another critique in 95 of American injustice and equality. And Springsteen was calling him because he needed some help with a, an album, an acoustic album in 1995 he brought out called Ghost of Tom Joad. And uh, Maharidge contributed, in fact, to uh, Ghost of uh, Tom Joad. Um, his, uh, his ideas are behind one of the great songs on that album here in Youngstown. I've always thought that album actually never got the recognition it deserved. It was the second acoustic uh, album that Bruce Springsteen brought out. And of course, the first was his um, legendary 1992 album, Nebraska, um, which he recorded in a bedroom in New Jersey on a four-track a teak recorder. There's a new book out about the making of Nebraska, um, as well as uh, the music behind it. And it's by my guest, Warren Zanes, Deliver Me From Nowhere, The Making of Bruce Springsteen's Nebraska. It's a wonderful book. Uh, I've been reading it all week. Uh, Warren, congratulations on that book. Um, Thank you. How does it compare, Warren? I, 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 wanna, I don't want to make this a conversation about Ghost of Tom Joad. Uh, but how does it compare? How do the two albums compare? I, I, I'm probably rather unusual. I have to admit, I think I prefer Ghost of Tom Joad. Oh, well, I, I can't. Um, you, well, I, I immediately wanted to respond to that, but I'm going to set it aside. Uh, okay. But... No, I know you won't, won't agree. Maybe, uh, maybe it's the <laughs> next step of, uh, of, uh, of Nebraska. But, 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 but talk to I me about... I want to make sure on one thing, because I think you mistakenly said 1992 and it's 1982. Yeah, I meant 82. Sorry. Yeah. I just want to make sure that the that, that people listening um, catch that, because I think it's important that year in particular. But I'd say here's here's the biggest distinction I'd make between those two records is. Nebraska is the only record of Bruce Springsteen's, the only one in his catalog that he made not knowing he was making an official release. And that absence of intention, or let's just say different intention, because he knew he was recording music. He just wasn't thinking he was recording music that he would release publicly. He was just making demos. And it's super important to me, and I think to particularly people who make music, they know that there's a kind of freedom and a looseness when you are recording uh, and you just know it's not for anybody else. Although I, I remember seeing, uh, I think I read a book and I certainly saw um, a movie about the making of Born to Run. He was obsessive about making albums, particularly the Born to Run idea. Um, 
and of course, Born to Run is now considered his greatest album, one of the great albums in the history of rock and roll. What is it about Nebraska that makes it so different from something like Born to Run? Is it because he wasn't planning an album and he didn't obsess over it for months and years and drive everyone else mad? Yeah, well, that that's one distinction. Um, but, you know, one that really compelled me to to write the book is that you know, when he's making Born to Run, when he's making Darkness, when he's making um, Wild, the Innocent, the East Street Shuffle, there's this a kind of ascendancy. And he's going after a career and he's building a career. And by the time he gets to the river, he's making his first, what became his first number one record. And it contains his first top 10 single. And so he's still on that ascendant track. And, you know, every unwritten rule in the music business would say where the, the river got him was to the platform from which you launch into from stardom to superstardom. Really, that's that's the moment you make born in the USA. And instead, Springsteen made a record that was was hard for a record company to know what to do with. It confused a lot of fans. Uh, it, it was this left turn that is singular. There's nobody else who's in the top 100 at the end of 1982, you know, at the year end top 100 chart. There's nobody else doing anything close to that. You know, have people made gritty, you know, home recordings before? Absolutely. From that station, it wasn't happening. And as your book um, shows brilliantly, I think, Deliver Me From Nowhere, uh, the making of Bruce Springsteen's Nebraska, it was all accidental. Uh, they almost stumbled into it, as you note in the book. Uh, everybody claims some sort of ownership for that decision, although Bruce ultimately, as you know, really made the decision. Uh, Steve Van Zandt also claims he made the decision. In, in your reading, you've spent a lot of time researching, writing and thinking about Nebraska. What was the story? How, how did it come about that you had this sort of weird separation of Born in the USA and Nebraska. They became two very distinct projects, even if he was recording the music simultaneously. Uh, well, that, I mean, that's what the whole book is about. So there are multiple answers to it. You know, that, that that's what drove me is, is really when I, when I read uh, his memoir, Born to Run, and Nebraska went by too fast for me in that account. Uh, now, he, you're talking about a life with, of such density that a lot of things had to go by fast, and it was still a long book. Uh, and I loved that book, but it felt Nebraska demanded more. But I was also looking at what happened in the aftermath of Nebraska. And, you know, by his account, he took a road trip west to the first home that he ever owned, first home ownership experience. And he drives across the country, New Jersey to Los Angeles via New Orleans and, you know, the Southern part of the country. And he has a kind of 
nervous breakdown that he talks about in a really candid, like strikingly candid way. And my reading, I just felt like there was a connection between the making of Nebraska and the soil that got loosened for him psychologically and this breakdown that came about. You know, I, I think, you know, you talked about him as an obsessive record maker and I agree 100%. Um, I might go further and say he's, he's a, the kind of record maker who puts all of himself into it. And the all of himself that he put into Nebraska it was a man putting himself into a somewhat dangerous place. And I felt there was a connection between that and the breakdown. And I, I looked at it as a story of an artist who was in a place where he had to make the record he had to make for himself, despite what a career shape should be, despite what, the marketplace was asking of him, despite what a record company was asking of him. And these moments in an artist's life really interest me. Like when you've got nothing to lose. And it's interesting to see somebody who had just had his biggest career success also having nothing to lose and making this record that was unfinished. It was without hope in a lot of ways. It was imperfect. Um, and then, you know, the other part of the story is the aftermath that for 40 years, this is the record that didn't just call to me when I was in trouble in life. I knew it was doing that for a lot of other people. So, you know, I think he was at an impasse where he made the record he had to make and he made something that is not represented anywhere else on the charts at that time. And it became the record for me and others we had to listen to, you know, it, it did things that we didn't often see music doing. Yeah. And you, you write about that brilliantly, especially in the beginning, you yourself were part of a, a band and, 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 and that's what you've spent your life doing. The reason I brought up Ghost of Tom Joe, the 1995, the second acoustic album, that's clearly a book of his critique of America. Is, in your view, um, Nebraska, is it um, an album about Bruce Springsteen or an album about America? It's I, both. I can't quite work it out. I mean, maybe it's, both, maybe. Yeah, it's, it's absolutely both. Uh, I include a little passage from a Greel Marcus review um, from before Nebraska came out. And I felt like it was a particularly prophetic piece of writing because he started talking about what he thinks the next Bruce Springsteen record is going to be after the river. And he says, he thinks it's going to be a record that talks about what's going on in America. And that was Reagan's America. You know, it was like morning in America. That was Reagan's slogan. And what Springsteen concerned himself was what was going on behind that facade of everything is great here that Reagan promoted so vociferously. Uh, and, and Marcus is sitting there saying, I think he's going to make a record that talks about Reagan's America. 
but I don't think he's going to do it directly. I think he's going to do it through the stories that he's going to tell. And it was almost short of describing the uh, kind of sonic qualities and the aesthetic of Nebraska. I think he was describing what was coming because I do think Springsteen was both going into his personal past, uh, into the trauma of childhood and through that circuit, he was also going into the hopelessness of Reagan's America, where you had this former actor standing up in front of a nation saying, all's well. And it was almost like this kind of really bad deal is like you had to, to be with Reagan. You had to go into this kind of denial that was going to fragment a country. And enough people went into that denial that on one level it worked. And then there was the forgotten population. And that's that forgotten population is what Springsteen was concerning himself with. But like Greel Marcus kind of prophesized, Springsteen wasn't placing it in 1982. A lot of it was in the 50s. But was that 50s reflected Reagan's America and the hopelessness of the forgotten population. Yeah, it's interesting. We're talking about the 50s this week with the release of um, Barbie, a very critical movie, I think, about the American past. And as you know, um, this is an album very personal for Bruce Springsteen in terms of um, his own history and also American history. I, like everybody else, I saw Springsteen on Broadway and I was looking back... Um, at my recording of it. It was a marvelous experience. And the one song from Nebraska in the Broadway program, or at least the recorded program, is My Father's House, which, of course, is an enormously personal song for Springsteen about his father, the most complicated and troubling of all his relations, I guess, throughout his life, but certainly through his childhood. Um, it, what, what, what else of his childhood is in Nebraska in addition to My Father's House? Well, the, the, by his account, the record, the, the writing of the Nebraska song started with Mansion on the Hill. And Mansion on the Hill um, is a child's point of view. And he, he has talked at various points about how his dad used to you know, get them in the car and they'd kind of be tourists in their own town and freehold and go and look at the, the bigger homes with, you know, where the inhabitants lived in, in, a, in a more grand style than they did themselves by far. And, uh, but he situates it in a very young point of view that is, is, you know, he said this in interviews, like it's, a, it's almost like a pre-critical voice. So Mansion on the Hill could be a story about the haves and the have-nots, but it, he resists that. It's more that child's point of view and just the kind of wonder. The mansion isn't a symbol of greed. The mansion isn't a symbol of what's gone wrong with capitalism, where far more people get left out of the story than get included in it. Uh, it's just, it's wonder. And, you know, I think that was like a super important move for him psychologically. He wanted to get to something that happened in his childhood that once you get to the song Nebraska, he saw his childhood reflected in the story of a serial murderer. 
So it wasn't bucolic, um, uh, but there was something, you know, some some kind of violence that I think was internal. You know, he wasn't talking about child abuse, but Mansion on the Hill sets up the child's perspective. It's a thing of wonder. And then it's like this, then the record can go into the felt ruptures and violences that Springsteen experienced. And again, this is by his account uh, as like an overly empowered, very young person, you know, between ages one and six. Um, so it's, this is the thing. It's like, it's Reagan's America told through these almost parables, but it's Springsteen's early childhood on something that happened back there in the passing of trauma. And he's doing both at once. And then in the wake of it, I just think he loosened, you know, like I said earlier, loosened soil psychologically that that's when you need someone with you. And he eventually, you know, at the end of that road trip, he gets into therapy and starts getting more support, like so many of us need. And, you know, this whole project, you know, brought me to many things. But one of them is that Bruce Springsteen is, uh, I think, a, a brave person. And he also knows who he is as a public figure. And talking about mental health issues publicly is the brave move that he made. And um, I wish more people would do it. But I, but I, through this project, I saw just even more clearly how willing he is to uh, use exposure to potentially, you know, help others. Yeah, he brings that out, of course, in his book. And he knows, I think, I, I, from, from the Broadway show, I think he noted that he never understood his father because he didn't understand mental illness and he didn't understand his father himself um, was, was sick. Um, yeah, you know, Reagan, sorry, go on. So many, uh, just, just, there's so many of us who, um, have complicated relationships with parents. That's another, another level of exposure that's, that's helpful for us because I think he's in, he's not into, you know, my father was bad. I'm good. I got to get away from this guy. It's much more like I, I need him. I'm only going to get parts of him. Um, there are all these layers between us, many of which will never be lifted. Like this is stuff we all need to hear. You know, like for, for my part, like my father is out of, he died a couple of years ago. I only met him, you know, in my conscious years, post two, a handful of times. And I'm one example of how many. You know, so for Springsteen to publicly go into this stuff, um, it's empowering for others who could use a little help in this area. Yeah. And you spent a lot of time with him. Um, you, know, you, you write about the time you spend. One of the intriguing things I got from the book was, uh, again, a more complicated, not, not so much about the father, but the mother and the family um, from the book, from what I remember, and certainly from the the Broadway show, his mother is presented as a very glamorous, optimistic, music-loving music figure. But you note in the book that for the first six or seven years of his life, uh, his mother was entirely absent, and he lived with his grandparents in this in, in enormously run-down place in, in 
uh, in New Jersey. Uh, yeah, did you, you talk um, much about the family? And of course, there's the, the dead aunt, the the sister yeah. of his mother. So it's it's very gothic. It's very Flannery O'Connor, as you note in the book. Yeah. The, so the parents were also living there, but in Springsteen's word, you know that he, he said during that time, and it was up through age six. Uh, he and his parents move in with the grandparents. And, you know, again, it's important to say in his own words, he says, you know, like his, his mother wasn't focused on, you know, motherhood in that time. And I think this is true for a lot of young families where suddenly you're like trying to stay in the game, make enough money to put food on the table and you've got a baby. If there are grandparents there, a lot of people do this. Just in this case, and Nebraska, he's very clear on this. Yes, in my father's house is on the record, but what he's really looking at is that time with his grandparents. And the key issue there is that the grandparents lost their daughter at a very young age. This is his aunt Virginia. And they instead of like processing their grief, it's like they froze time. And Aunt Virginia's picture, which Bruce showed me, was hanging on the living room wall over the television. You know, kind of these eyes always looking down at you. And he lived in this world of his grandparents' unprocessed grief. And their response to that unprocessed grief was to withhold all discipline from the first grandchild, who was Bruce. So almost Bruce, as, I mean, oddly enough, as Bruce notes, it was almost a punishment. They didn't probably mean it as one, but it turned out to be a punishment. Yeah, I mean, he he says, and, and this is where it's like he clearly like spent a lot of time thinking about this. He, he said it was the making of me. It was the destruction of me. And you can have those things simultaneously. And he said, from a child's perspective, it's like, wow, great. No discipline. But it's exactly what a kid does not want. It's crucial that whoever is in the position of, you know, bringing the discipline uses discipline to frame in the child's experience. That's how like, developmentally that's needed. If it's not there, it's trouble later on. And when he made Nebraska is when he bumped into the full scope of that trouble. You know that it was made in 1982 when Reagan came to power. Reagan, of course, being in many people's eyes, the cinematic or the, the first time that Hollywood came to power and the mixing up of politics and cinema. I mean, it happened before, but never quite as formally. You also note, Warren, in, in, in your wonderful book that um, Springsteen himself was enormously inspired, certainly for, for the cover song, uh, Nebraska, by Terrence Malick's Badlands and its retelling of the Charles Starkweather uh, ma multiple murders. T tell us about um, your sense of how Badlands affected Springsteen and, and shaped this 1982 album, this legendary album, Nebraska. Yeah, well, it's it relates to kind of exactly what we were just talking about is the that experience of early childhood, the absence of discipline. For him, you know, he says it was the making of me. It was the destruction of me. And that destruction of me side of it has a kind of internal violence to it. So, you know, 
what what happened, and, and this is like both, I, I call this from interviews with Bruce, and also this was kind of the interpretation that I had going into it was the violences he saw in Terrence Malick's film relating to this serial murder, which like just on a, like a material level do not look like his childhood. He responded to the violences of those serial murders by identifying with it through the more internal violences of his childhood, of having no discipline, of wanting it, pushing against things and nobody pushing back. So unless Bruce told us he saw his childhood in the story of this, you know, serial murder, we wouldn't know. But he he stepped up and said that. There was something about my childhood in there. And it's an incredible story to me for someone to acknowledge that. You know, that's a lot of, that's the kind of thing a lot of us would bury. If I watched something about a serial murder and I said, I recognize my life in there, I probably wouldn't want to tell a girl on a date that that's the case. You know, it's like we've got these filters that keep us from saying anything. And it's another reason I admire Springsteen is he had this identification with a brutally violent story and told us about it and then wrote a song about it. And the song begins a story about Charles Starkweather, who's the serial murderer, and it's written in the third person and it's called Starkweather. And then it changes. It's called Nebraska and it's written from the first person point of view. And at the end, when you've got the serial murderer sitting in the electric chair, it's, it's eye centered and it's Springsteen singing from the electric chair. You know, this is another moment where you go like, look at the pop charts, look at the pop charts in 1982 and show me anyone working at that level. Look at the top 100 again. Is anything like that going on anywhere else you know it's not and had had we heard of murder have we heard of multiple murders and songs yeah you can go back into you know country and folk catalog uh it's there but were people who just had a number one record doing this you know absolutely not well and correct me if I'm wrong, but my reading of the book suggests that you're, you're not formally arguing this, but you're suggesting that in a way, Nebraska was one of the first punk albums. Is that fair? Uh, well, I wouldn't say first because it's um... an early, shall we say an early in terms of its spirit and its influence. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, you know, if, if punk is really, you know, 76, 77 is, is the sweet spot of its, you know, more public emergence. I just felt like, you know, we had, we had, growing up in New Hampshire, we had Nevermind the Bollocks. We had the slits and the raincoats. Uh, we had, you know, the, the Clash records. Um, and... It felt like punk never, never like paid off in the way that we hoped it would. And by 1982, its moment had passed. And then Nebraska seemed like it was, there was so much defiance in it. 
that's what I identified as punk. And it felt like, despite the absence of electric guitars, you know, in the way that we associated them with punk, despite the centrality of an acoustic guitar, despite the absence of a drummer, it was like, in spirit, this felt like more punk than anything leading up to it. You know, it was so, it was so odd. It was so defiant. There was so much misbehavior that we loved it for all those things. Yeah, and it's, again, I, uh, there's so many ironies here. Um, you loved it for its uncompromising quality and uncompromising message. And yet it was, as a project, deeply compromised. Uh, compromised, and how are you using it? Well, in the sense, as you suggest, that it no one ever intended it. It just kind of came out. And as, as you know, in the book, uh, Springsteen, I think, suggests that the music decided, or the songs on Nebraska decided to almost bring themselves out. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know if like compromise would be yeah, my Maybe word. that's the wrong word. Um, but it, it was, it's, yeah, it's like it's, the thing was made with so much intention in some areas and so little intention in other areas, you know, it, and my vision that I've, that I've shared before is like, I sometimes as I was writing it, like I imagined this cassette tape sitting in the middle of a conference room table, like imagine a boardroom and it's just sitting there in the center of the table and it's surrounded by some of the biggest figures in popular music, you know? Yeah, that's the so, opening of the movie, uh, Warren. <laughs> but they're all like scratching their heads. It's Bruce Springsteen, it's Chuck Pluck, and it's John Landau, you know, it's, uh, it's the E Street Band and there's this cassette at the center and like nobody can outsmart this cassette because something happened that's contained on that cassette that like is going to force its way into the world. You and know, it's not and just it's, the cassette as a metaphor, as you know, in the book, he only had one recording. He recorded it in this bedroom in New Jersey. And then when he wanted Landau to hear it, who was his manager, he had to send it to him. And then when Landau had listened, he had to collect it because there was only one recording. Yeah. Yeah. So if, if it had gotten lost in the mail or if Springsteen <laughs> got on a public bus and sat on it the wrong way, we wouldn't have the record. Well, like his boombox, you know, which they took uh, canoeing and then and they broke that and then it came back to life. Yeah, I mean, there's so there's so much that you're just not going to find uh, a like example. I mean, we we live in the age of uh, backing things up, you know, like you back it up, you back it up. Here's this thing that's like not backed up, being sent through the mail, carried in a pocket. Like the number of things that, that could go wrong, it's there's a mystical quality to the story that I love. And I and I it's hard and I obviously didn't resist the idea that the music was gonna have its way. This was this was music that got recorded that was gonna force its way into the world and get Springsteen to that place where he just finally said, I guess this is the record. Yeah, it's enough you know. to make you religious, Warren. I know uh, Springsteen himself. Uh, the idea that um, this was meant to be, and 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 it 
was indeed it it did indeed uh, become um it, it's, I, I, it's an I, astonishing story yeah i just have on your what you just said it's just uh <laughs> it's enough to make you religious i just went and saw bruce in outside of milan you know 70,000 people mostly italians obviously um watching bruce and you know, earlier that day, I went to the Brera uh, gallery and I was looking, you know, it's, it's primarily like um, international Gothic style through early Renaissance up to high Renaissance into the Baroque. But you're looking at the a lot of saints and a lot of um, religious iconography, obviously. And I'm looking at these faces and I'm taking them in and then. I go to see Bruce Springsteen and, you know, to play to 70,000 people now, so much of it involves screens and there are all these close-ups and I'm looking at Bruce's face and I'm like, I think a lot of these people are looking at that face of Bruce Springsteen, the way they would look at saints in those paintings. Like this is spiritual stuff. And I was talking to someone and they said, you know, in Scandinavian countries, I think they're connecting to him as a representative of, of the working classes. But in Italy, they're looking at him as a kind of um, almost spiritual leader. And I'm telling you, it was, it, it was wild. And maybe it was just that juxtaposition of the Brera art gallery and then going to see Bruce. But that's not an easy role for any artist to step into. And I just think he does it uh, with the humility and without, without, without a pulpit that is on in a high place. I think his pulpit is on like ground level. And yeah, that's it's the humility uh, and a, this sort of combination of humility and bemusement and amusement. Um, and, and and the story itself is Springsteen-esque in, in the sense that it ends well. The tape doesn't get lost. He delivers it. They make the album. Now it's become uh, this iconic album, perhaps his most iconic, certainly for insiders like yourself. The, the, the album ends with reason to believe. Um, there's a glimmer of hope. You note in the book that the album isn't classic or conventional Springsteen redemption, but the album does have an element of redemption in it. It's not bleak. It's not quite as dark, certainly as Ghost of Tom Joe. Well, Springsteen would disagree with you on that. Good. Um, we'll have to get him on the show. Can you get him on the show, Warren? <laughs> I wish I had that kind of power. Uh, we would have fun. Um, no, I mean, he says, I don't I don't know where people get anything positive for reason to believe in. He's like, well, I guess it's the title. Like it's it's misleading. But, you know, the the, the point in the song is there is no reason to believe. And uh, he, he hadn't done that before. There was always some sliver. It's like the end of crime and punishment um, where there's just just a little light comes in through the cracks so that you can believe in redemption. And, uh, you know, I, I, in, in my reading, it, it's not there. It's not there. And that's to say it's not in the album itself. Where the re redemption is, is in the act of making it 
and what it did with people once he sent it out into the world. Like sometimes the redemption in an art project isn't in the art itself. It's in the act of make the, the act and the fact of making it and the transmission between people. And Nebraska has had that. So I, I think it's a story that has, you know, a quote, happy ending, unquote, because of what it did. Like, look, when I ran into a shit storm in my life, you know, whether it was divorce, a hard time parenting, a tough time with a sibling, I went to and Nebraska. And that was the Del Fuego incident with your brother, right? <laughs> Let's not get into specifics. Uh, um, but I went to Nebraska because I'm like, I could be with those people. Well, that's 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 a good ending to the story. That, that it became that place I could go. And though it was a place that was didn't have hope, it was a place that I felt that enough of a sense of belonging that I got to the next chapter in my own story. But he, he writes in Reason to Believe, still at the end of every hard day, people find some reason to believe. To me, there's some hope there. I mean, Bruce wrote it, so of course it's his song. Who am I to argue with him? But, but, but there's a glimmer, there's a, a glint of light in that, isn't there? At least we want to believe, and even if we don't have a reason to believe, we want to, and we do. Yeah, well, I mean, he, he's ultimately working, and Nebraska's a, a really key turning point that I think he works more and more as a, a poet-like writer. And the the work of the poet is to take us places, but not to um, synthesize it all for it. It's not prepackaged. It's it's meant to lead us to moments where you say, I feel a glimmer of hope. And I say, I don't think it's there. And we keep talking about it, you know. And how does it look when we look back from 2023 at 1982? Of course, he came out with and you note this in the book quite a lot, Born in the USA, which became a huge hit that turned him from a very popular rock and roller to one of the most iconic entertainers in, in the world. Does that add to the significance in your view of Nebraska? Could he have got to, you, you suggest in the book that he probably couldn't have got to Born in the USA from the river. There needed to be this odd detour to, to Nebraska for him to do that. Yeah, I mean, I, I, uh, I think Bruce says it, John Landau says it, you know, as an author, I, you know, I try not to like put my opinion in the book. It's obviously going to be there, but more importantly, those guys say it. He had to go through, he had to take this byway to get to that place. And that that fascinates me, you know, because I think it's too, you know, we've got this old art commerce dichotomy that is so wrong. You know, we've got some notion that, you know, oh, if you're making art, you're not in the marketplace. And if you're in the marketplace, well, it can't be art. And this isn't true. If you're making recordings and selling them, you're in the marketplace. But it interests me in, in a long career when an artist has to make a decision that's a few degrees further from the marketplace. 
And the reasons might be wildly personal or it might be wildly artistic, uh, you know, but it's not a dichotomy. It's, it's like how much in the marketplace, because you're always already in it, if that makes sense. And uh, how, how, how looking back post born in the USA, um, do you, uh, would you summarize Bruce Springsteen's career? Was that, was that the end of the great years or, or, or in your view, post mid eighties, has he done important work since then? Uh, it's when I got, I got an early copy of Western stars. Um, yeah. And I listened to it and, you know, my first thought was it, it reminded me of however different the production, it reminded me of tunnel of love. I'm like, Oh, he got himself to a similar place. It wasn't him making stuff by himself at home, but there's something about, the voice and the, the characters I felt coming through that voice in the writing, the emotional spaces of it. Um, I, I just think he's one of the most interesting long careers that we've got. And the people who have these long, long careers are few. And they're not, they're going to have this born to run darkness on the edge of town tunnel of love born in the USA to get them to this particular place where they're going to have more freedoms, I think artistically. Uh, and they're not going to be able to do for the audience they, they have to contend with an audience that wants to hear born to run because everybody was at a particular age when that thing like woke them up to Bruce Springsteen and they want to go back to that place in their lives. So to have the long career, you got to deal with that aspect of the audience. But is Bruce Springsteen at age 73 capable of making his best record ever? I think so. And I think he's uh, artistically curious. And I think he sees himself um, and presents himself as a person who's still learning things. And that, those are the ingredients. Give me a Grail Marcus. What, what, what would you guess he'll go? He'll go. I mean, particularly in the America. I mean, uh, he's he's already done some songs about Trump. If Trump becomes president again, um, given all the inequalities and the crisis of democracy and the the violence of America on, on so many it, levels, could could okay. we see some? Could it be a return in an odd way to um, to Nebraska? Uh, here, here's my prophecy. Um, I'll venture one since we're, we're, the ideas come up. Um, I've been, I remember when um, Dylan did Time Out of Mind and the song, It's Not Dark Yet. And, uh, I, and it, it was, it excited me because I felt like, wow, I want to hear about mortality. We live in a culture that is so ad advanced in denying death. And I want a great rock and roller, and I consider Dylan a great rock and roller, to, to sing to me about mortality. 
I feel like that record hasn't been made. And I thought about, uh, Leonard, Co Leonard Cohen's last album came close, didn't it? Bowie, Leonard Cohen. Uh, I'm, I, I'm still waiting on the one that feels like just the right one to me. I thought Tom Petty might make one, but it's going to be one of these artists who, who, who feels no reason to make a record if they can't make their best one. And I think Springsteen thinks like that. He thinks seriously about his records, but I That's want, but, but I want someone to talk about mortality because I think it's bigger than if Trump got into office and it's because we're dealing with mortality at an individual level, how we take care of our parents, but also at this global level with, it's like, I'm, you could be taught, we're thinking about death because of what's going on with environmentally. And I think somebody could, I think the way we don't deal with our own mortality or our parents' mortality, our fear of death, I think it ties into what we're experiencing on a planetary level. And I think there's a way to just start talking about, it's like when Cormac McCarthy did The Road. I felt like that book was super important. And I feel like some, somebody's going to make a, a record that helps us. It doesn't make, we won't make peace with the idea of death, but that will get us closer to talking about it in a way that doesn't involve so much denial, collective denial. And I think Springsteen could be the guy. And I hope it doesn't come too soon, but I think he's, uh, uh, I think he's an explorer. And I think he's very keenly looking out at what's going on in the world and seeing that our like denial about human mortality is going to make us less capable of looking at what's going on with the planet. That's my prophecy. Well, there you have it, Bruce. If you're watching, Warren has your next project. And it's particularly relevant in the age of AI and, of course, out here in Silicon Valley of the delusion, the hubris of, of living for, forever. Finally, Warren, um, I, I noted on the Springsteen site that they're re-releasing um, a 1984-85 tour of Born in the USA. What haven't we heard of Nebraska that you'd like to hear? You note that it might be intriguing to get the E Street Band's version of some of the Nebraska songs. And, and you also, I think, or correct me if I'm wrong, suggest that most of those recordings have been lost. Um, is there... Is there music from Nebraska that still we haven't heard that could be, so to speak, re-released that will allow us to think about this great work differently or add to the level of understanding? Well, I, I can't speak from the inside, but, you know, I think the electric Nebraska recordings, I think they've got them. You know, I think it's a, it's a question of um, uh, what does it do to Nebraska. Um, but I, I, I honestly, when I say I could see it happening, that's based on nothing. I have no idea. Um, but I know a, a lot of people would be interested to hear it. I mean, I, I think you could do an amazing Nebraska project. Yeah, you could do it. Uh, I mean, yeah, it would such, be amazing. It's such a big career. There's such density to it that there's, they're in such deep legacy work right now anyway. Um, it's just one of many things they could do.